One of the reasons why we read God's word before we jump in is twofold. One, we want it to be fresh. We want to see the, the, the text that God is having us hear from today. But also, one of the things that we value, um, we've been talking about this a lot lately, there's something newer that we've been doing, which is reading the, ser the uh, sermon text before we come up here, which is uh, just that we want you to know that we are expounding on God's word. Th this isn't my word this morning. We are here to hear from the Lord. And so we want to first hear from his word so that we can have that primary before any human being, any man comes up here and talks about it. So beginning in verse 13 of chapter 1, 1 Peter, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for yours, the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so now you've heard most of chapter 1 and chapter 2 today. Uh, and so you have the context here. Well, the context that came before this, as we've been seeing so far in this series, is that uh, Peter has been, is, he's been telling us, you are exiles. You are strangers in a strange land. As, as Christians, this world is not your home. You should never feel completely comfortable. Your citizenship is in another kingdom. And so you are meant for another, another reality altogether. And so Peter so far in chapter 1 has been unpacking what that reality is. What the reality is that we have in the gospel. What the reality is that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Peter today, as we come to this passage, he begins to talk about grace. And it's interesting because last week we ended again with the end of chapter 12 and Peter was unpacking this salvation that's been told by the prophets and throughout the ages. In other words, this is not God's plan B. There's nothing uh, going on right now that has thwarted God's plan, but this is still God's plan A of salvation for his people, even when it doesn't feel like it is. And he ends with this clause. He, he talks about it and then he adds this, things into which angels long to look. Now, we didn't really unpack that last week, and you might be like, why does Peter throw that in there, right? Like, all of a sudden, it's just like, da, 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 and the angels, right? You're like, oh, why does he say that? I think he says it for something profound that's going to help us start today. He says it because the angels are looking. They're watching this history of redemption. They're watching this history of salvation, and they're wondering the entire time, how is it possible? And how will it happen? Why? Because for angels who are fallen, there is no salvation. There is no possibility of salvation. Once you are fallen, you are fallen. There's no chance of grace. There's no chance of redemption. And there's, they're looking. They're watching. Anticipating. How is this possible? And so what Peter's going to go into today right away is he's going to talk about that grace. And I think this is incredibly important. This has been in a very helpful text for my soul this week. Because we live in a day, which I'll come back to this a little bit, 
where it seems like it's, it's almost like the angels, where now we live in this time where we, we are aware of all the guilt. We're aware of all the, the, the fall and all the mess and all the problems and all the brokenness, whatever word you want to use all around us as a society. But at the same time, we don't know how to offer redemption. And so this morning, I want us all to lean in like the angels. I want us to say, how is this possible when we live in a world that says it's not possible? You've messed up, you're done. How is it possible that we could find redemption? And we're going to see, as Peter says, it's all because of God's grace in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at this morning is first, the grace that makes life possible. Second, the guilt that makes life impossible. And third, how to take hold of grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Lord, help us this morning as we wake up and our minds are foggy. And Lord, help us this morning to hear anew, to hear afresh of your grace. Lord, help us like the angels to lean in and hear of it for the first time, to be amazed and overwhelmed by the grace that you've given us in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The grace that makes life possible. Peter says something very interesting here as he starts. Uh, starting in chapter, or verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So what Peter says here is everything in this life, so the revelation of Jesus Christ, I think what he's referring to here uh, is when Jesus comes again, right? Jesus' second coming, when everything, all sin is done away with, when, when everything is made new, and he says, set your hope on the grace that's going to be revealed at that moment. In other words, Peter's saying, if, I'm going to, if you have a map of life and you're following that map, the X, the destination, where you are headed, the end of the train line, it is grace. That word fully there is the Greek word for telos, where we get words like teleology and the words for the end of all things. And he's saying the end of all things, the anticipation you should live in light of is that you have a sure hope of grace. You have a sure grace. And this entire life is lived knowing that one day you will be fully embraced, fully immersed in the grace of God. Now, why do I say that that's interesting? It's interesting because then Peter seems to say, when I read this next verse, that yes, one day you can have grace, but right now, be holy. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. For since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Now, why I say that's interesting is because it seems like, is, is Peter saying this? When I first read it, I was like, Peter, this is odd because it seems like what you're saying here is right now, you should be holy, pure, no sin. There's no one in your life who you've hurt. There's no sense of guilt in your mind that you are to be holy. And if you are holy, this is my reading at first of Peter, if you are holy, then you can have the hope one day of receiving the grace of God. Isn't it easy to read it that way? Be holy as I am holy, and therefore one day you can have the grace of God. And see, here's the thing. As I'm reading, I'm going, wait, wait. One, if I'm holy now, why would I need grace one day? Right? So one, it doesn't make logical sense that Peter be saying that. But the other thing, then I start reading, I'm going, wait, is, P like, is Peter's theology off? Is my entire, the entire way I've thought about the Bible and the way I've read it, is it off? No, I don't, obviously I don't think that. <laughs> what if right now I was like, actually, guys, we need to flip the whole thing, right? No, it's by grace. 
that we are saved. I think what Peter's doing here is Peter's being real. Peter's hitting on a dynamic that's a real dynamic of the Christian life. He's being pastoral. He's, he's actually writing to real people in a real time, just like we are real people in a real time who struggle with sin. He's describing exactly the predicament we find ourselves in, if we're honest with ourselves. We live in a world made by a holy God, yet we often find ourselves falling short of that glory, of his holiness. And just to make it clear, the holiness of God, the Bible in the Old Testament talks about the state of the holiness of God as the kuved of God, the weightiness, the, the presence of God, the reality of a holy and pure God who is perfection of love and beauty and truth and goodness. Anyone measure up? <laughs> None of us measure up. It's inescapable, this tension. He's saying you want this salvation, you want this grace, and the angels are looking in because they've fallen, but there's, if they have fallen, there's no salvation for them. If you, what if you have sinned, and then he says, be holy as I am holy, then what do I do, God? Is there any hope for me? It's an inescapable tension, a reality that we live with guilt. In fact, most of the 20th century, and here's the thing, I know that everyone's like, well, we, we don't really like to talk about guilt, we don't really like to talk about shame. Here's the thing, the entire 20th century, all of, from psychological to psychiatric to sociological, historical, all the works have been, ever since Freud, have been trying to figure out what to do with modern man when you get rid of any standard of holiness, any idea of a God. What do we do? Because mankind still has this thing called guilt. And boy, does it stick around. And so many of the works since then, I, I'm, gosh, I could go into this. We could just do a lecture right now for like three hours on this. We have everyone from Ernest Becker, Denial of Death, it says that most of modern life is driven by this, the unresolved guilt that's in our soul. He describes it as like a, like a freight train. When you're standing in the subway, if you've ever been in a big city and the freight train's coming in or the train's coming in and it just starts shaking, he said it, it rolls under your life and your subconscious, guilt and that sense of death underneath your subconscious like a freight train, just like everything's always shaking. And that drives your life. Guys like Eric Hoffer, who was a sociologist in the middle of 20th century, he was one of the first sociolo sociologists studying the mass movements, totalitarian mass movements of, of World War II. And what he discovered, his claim, and this has been borne out ever since then on studying mass movements, and especially ones that end up totalitarian and controlling people and crushing people, being very inhumane, as he says, it starts with people who have what Irving Goffman calls a spoiled identity. And what they do is they turn to something to try, because there's this something that I'm not what I should be. I failed at something and trying to resolve that. And they resolve that by joining in something that seems to be idealistic. I could go on and on and on. We, in the entire 20th century into the 21st century, the big problem now, 80, 90 years since Freud, when he started saying this, we've been trying to somehow culturally address this, and the issue is it just keeps getting worse. Guilt is a nagging reality, hardwired into something. And at the end of the day, most don't know what to do. 
Most solutions either deny either one, try to deny the guilt to make light of it, or deny the reality of a holy God or any kind of standard. We'll come back to that, but Peter says you must first deal with both. Do you know that the Bible says there's a way to actually deal with it? And I'm, I'm talking just really quick. I'm talking about whatever is the darkest thing that right now you don't want anyone in this room to know. Whatever that underneath the floor, not even the closets that you put there. It's like the thing you put underneath the floorboard and hid it there. And, and what Christianity says, what the gospel of Jesus Christ says is there is grace even for that. That a holy God can look directly at whatever is the worst of what we committed, whatever the deepest shame is that we're carrying, and say, yes, that is true, but also say that, yes, there's this thing called grace. How? What's interesting is that the, the word no comes up a lot in this passage, right? It's you got to know, they're preparing your minds, we'll come back to that, and, and kind of this idea of knowing something, and then he goes into verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed. But he goes down to verse 21 or 20. And he talks about being, there was something that was foreknown. Peter says that before we ever even knew the depths of our sin and our problem, God already foreknew the solution. Think about that. Just think about the profoundness of what Peter is saying here. He's just told us before that God has this plan A of salvation. And it's so hard for this to sink into our souls when we're face-to-face with our sin, when we're face-to-face with our guilt. And so he doubles down. He says, no, 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 this is not plan B. God has always been aware before you ever even committed your sin, before you ever even knew the depths of your sin, before you ever even woke up to the reality of the heinousness of your sin, how much you've hurt someone in your life, whatever that is, how much you've been hurt, whatever that sin and the weight of it is, God foreknew it. And he has provided a way that will sufficiently deal with it. God would not foreknow and create a solution that he knew would then fail. That means whatever it is that haunts you, that whispers to you in the middle of the night, whatever that thing is, here's what I want you to hear in the midst of all the voices that are around us right now. There is a path to redemption and healing and freedom. And it's found here in what Peter's talking about. And I know some of you are so racked with these things, so controlled, and you feel just like your soul is tied down or like you're suffocating, like grace is up there, and you're like underwater just drowning in this reality. Here's the thing, what Peter, and I want you to hear this morning, is that God's grace is sufficient. God made a way by his grace. He didn't lessen his holiness. Read verse 20 and 21, it says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. He was made manifest in the last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. How did he accomplish that? Right before it, verses 18 and 19. Knowing that, this is what we must know, that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. 
in the temple in the Old Testament. Peter is the sacrifice of Christ. Here's what would happen in the temple. Ongoing reality of sin. And so every day what was happening in the temple is the people would go to the courtyards there in order to go into the presence of God, to approach a holy God, to have that sense of guilt in their consciousness and shame before others around them. To deal with it, they would bring a sacrifice that was fitting for that sin. And what they would do, and I know this is really graphic, but this is the reality of how seriously God takes care or looks at our sin. And deep down, we know it is this serious. God says, my glory, my holiness, it is life. And in your sin, you have now taken away life from this world. And so life is the payment. And so they would bring an animal, and what they would do is they would, they would hold the animal, and they would actually put their hand on the animal's head. You can read Leviticus. That's what they would do. They put their hand on the animal's head, and they would take a knife, and they would slit its throat. And while they looked into the animal's eyes, while life drained from its eyes and the blood drained from its body, they would acknowledge their sin that has caused this. Why the payment is necessary. And then as that payment was made, they'd be declared righteous. And what Peter is saying here is that there is now a blood because God, the holy God of the universe, entered a fallen creation. And his holy son came with a heart putting on the heart of God, the grace of God, and he came into this world and he said, I will become the sacrifice for your sins. And he became the pure and spotless lamb. And see, here's the thing. He became man so he could atone us for our sins. Little side note, because I know you've all been wondering, wait, why isn't that angels can't be redeemed? Angels cannot be redeemed because there was not, there were, Jesus said angels do not marry or are given in marriage, so they don't have offspring. All angels are of one kind. They're like almost like, think like one different, they're all different species. They aren't of one like man, mankind, of Adam. All of humanity is. Therefore, Jesus could take on the form of man and be an atoning sacrifice for man and return him to God. Angels could not be redeemed because there's no atoning sacrifice. This is the key of where the angels would have leaned in and go, how is it possible? Blood of goats and bulls could not do it, but guess what did it? God himself became man, the holy God of the universe, and he took on our sin nature, and he died our death in our place so that when he rises from the grave, he, we would rise with him if we're one with him and walk in newness of life. And not just any newness of life, but a life free from guilt and shame and a life that is free to pursue holiness like our Savior. And Peter says, if you want to have a grace that makes life possible, Put your faith in Christ. Look to him. He says in the, the end, the object, the, the clause that matters, our hope are in God. In God. The whole thing culminates is in God, not in us, not in what we can do, but it's in God. One of the ways to think about this. So one, we need to know about the grace of God if we're to have life and to have grace. And the way that you come to the grace of God is by trusting or placing your faith in Christ. And so many of us, what we do is we think that it's just about kind of like praying a prayer or something and then, oh, I know that whole Christian thing. And then the whole thing about life is just get my act together and just prove it the entire time and prove myself to God. I know I've used this illustration before, but if you haven't heard it, I think it'll be helpful. When he says place your faith in God, in Christ, that matters. What you place your faith in matters because it's what gives you hope and confidence 
every day in life. If I, I've talked about before, I'm terrified of like ocean water. And so the idea of being on a ship is like the most terrifying thing in the world for me. And um, so I'm going to use a ship analogy. Uh, the Titanic, it's like a horror film for me. And so they're on a boat, right? If you, uh, you remember when the iceberg hit the ship, right? And then it starts taking on water. And then all the people are walking around, right? Like the guy, the Monopoly guy is walking around, the violin guy. And they're like, oh, it's fine. The boat can't sink, right? They have incredible faith in that boat. Incredible faith. Strong faith. They understand the boat. They understand how it's designed and everything. They're walking around telling everybody, oh, get off. Just listen to the band, right? It's going to be fine. Grab some ice and make a drink. Make a cocktail. Uh, but the ship sank. What their faith was in sank. And they perished. I, if I were on the Titanic and that happened, I, it doesn't even have to hit an iceberg, right? It, it just takes off from the port and everyone's waving their hankies like, yay, bye. And I'm just standing there like screaming, holding on to one of those big smoke pipe things, right? Just holding on, screaming, ah, right? Well, it doesn't matter. If I'm, I choose to get on the boat and I hang on, which is faith of a mustard seed, and I hang on, if that boat makes it to the other side, guess what? I arrive home on the other side. It doesn't matter. This is why in the New Testament, it doesn't matter the strength of your faith. It's not faith in your faith. It's not faith in your spirituality. It's not faith in your spiritual temperament or whatever it might be. It's what you place your faith in that matters. And what Peter says here is, are you placing your faith in Jesus Christ? Because he is the one who makes it through to the other side. So your hope and your confidence can be in him. Where do you place your faith for life in the midst of that sense of guilt? Success? Career? A special someone? Where do you place your faith in? Grace makes life possible. But before how, how do we take hold of that grace? Peter, make sure we're not driven by guilt or it will short-circuit the entire process of the Christian life. Uh, the guilt that makes life possible. Uh, if we're called to holiness, yet we're in need of grace, that means our entire life will be lived within this gap. A gap that we'll sense. A gap between, God, you made me holy, and God, you called me to holiness, but God, I also find myself where Romans 7, when Paul's wrestling with God, like I do what I don't want to do, and I don't do what I do want to do, God, what am I supposed to do? And here's the thing, grace or guilt is a really complex thing. And I think we're all out of whack today on it. But I think there are parallels to what happened in Peter's day where he says, listen, the thing is when you, instead of running to grace in the midst of that sense of guilt, what often we do is we run from grace because we, we see God's holiness and God's holiness and grace go together. But what we do instead of moving towards God's holiness is in the face of our guilt, what we do is we just run from grace. We run towards guilt. And I think right now this is incredibly important to look at our souls and figure out where we might be doing this. I want to break this down a ton throughout this series, but just one of the things, because I think there are cross-pressors in our modern age as Christians. Here's the thing. One, we live with the internal sense of guilt. Okay, so let's go with three dynamics. kind of going off cuff here. Three dynamics of where this comes up. One is it comes from internally, that we live with this sense of guilt. We know what we do and what we are and what we should be and what that gap is. 
But then also we live in a time where there's also kind of, now we don't have an agreed standard upon what is holiness, what is right, what is true, what is good, what is pure, what is beautiful. We don't, we don't agree on any of that anymore. That's what, ever since Freud and all the thinkers in, in Western academia have been trying to figure out what do we do as human beings, let alone a society, when we don't know what to do with our guilt. And then also we get this external pressure that's coming in. These are all kind of cross pressures, external pressures that are coming in, which is what happens then when socially, because as a society, we don't know how to redeem ourselves, then what happens when we as a society start heaping guilt on one another? See, this is why I say it's one of the dynamics that Peter was seeing. Was in verse two or chapter two, I don't remember actually if we just read this <laughs> during the scripture reading, uh, but he says, beloved, I urge you, listen to this, what they're experiencing in the church. I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers. Do you notice what they're doing here? That a lot of what the church is facing right now, and Peter knows this, this is why he's emphasizing grace. He says, you're in a world where everyone's always going to be highlighting where you're failing. They're always out there going, holy. Oh, look, you want to be a Christian. You're, you're good? Look at you. Look at your life. Right, where they have just enough of a view where they can look in and they can point out all the cracks and all the things. In other words, the gap that you know is there in your life is being amplified publicly. And even if they're not pointing out exactly what the thing is, it creates and cultivates this constant sense of, I don't know how else to put the word, but hypocrisy. Being an imposter. And so what used to be just this internal reality, now we've amplified as society, especially if you're just scrolling all day on social media, where all you're hearing constantly, because we as society know how to point out flaws, we know how to point out where things are broken, but we don't know how to redeem. And so what happens in our day, and man, guys, I'm just, I feel this. And here's what I feel, and this is why it terrifies me. This is what if there's something that keeps your pastor up at night and I wake up and I'm, and I'm just calling out to God, it's the, just knowing that what happens is we're, we don't even see how guilt is just constantly flowing over us and what it does, it just burns us out and gets us to a place where we're just ready to throw in the towel. We need grace in a day when we have no idea how to take hold of it. We'll come back to how we take hold of it, but two ways of running from guilt. Peter says in verse 18, he tells them to turn from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. Now, what's Peter referring to there? He's referring to right there about the atoning sacrifices in the temple and the ways that they could atone for their sin. He's saying, turn from the futile ways. Turn from the futile ways of dealing with your guilt and turn to the grace that's in Jesus Christ. And what he's saying is in our day, in Peter's day, we have ways that we try to deal with that guilt that are futile, that don't save us, that don't free us, that don't change us. And what he's saying today is the same thing, that there are futile ways that we try to deal with our guilt and run from our guilt versus running to grace. And just so you do not spend your life unconsciously running from something. Joy is found. Peace is found when you know you're running to something. What Peter's saying here is, I want you to run to grace, not just run from guilt your entire life. Two way we, ways we run, numbing ourselves. 
Verse 14, Peter says, don't be conformed to passions of former ignorance. Why does he say that? Well, I think he says it because it's, it's much easier to just turn around. It's much easier in the midst of when you come face to face with holiness. Because here's the thing, if you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to follow the way of Jesus, and you're, you're going to know him, and you're going to walk with him. Here's the thing, you're going to come up against the reality. You're going you're to walk right into a holy God. And, and the thing is, if you're living with this undealt with guilt, what will happen after a while when you come up to a holy God is that's when you start to just try to numb it and shut it down because you're so aware of this nagging sense that there's this gap and there's something I should be, but, I, but I'm not that. And God, what do I do with that? And it's so easy to become overwhelmed where you just start numbing yourself. This is why I see Christians pendulum swing from one side where they're, they're like, I'm forgiven and I'm free. But then if they don't really know how to walk in that grace and take a hold of that grace on an ongoing basis, then what happens is before too long, they find themselves turning to numbing themselves. Entertainment, illicit pleasures, comforts, working themselves to death. We all have something that we turn to, something that numbs it, that just quiets that voice in our head, that can drown it with a bottle. I can quiet that voice just by because all the, the, the things around us, we can just achieve more and do more and climb to a higher level in life. If we can just do that, then I can just silence all those internal voices. Even a successful life can be a numb life. A su- successful life is not bad. But God wants you to be, if you're going to be successful, God wants you to do it with a, a heart that's alive to him that has joy, that overflows, that's not trying to run from something, but run to something. Peter says that was your former ignorance. It was done out of ignorance, not knowing what it means to live a life that's built on something that lasts, that's true, but just trying to shut down guilt. But you have grace. One of the things we talk about in communion a lot of times is the world drinks to forget, but we drink to remember. The world drinks to forget, to numb, but we drink to remember. As Paul said, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die, but for Christians, it's eat, drink, and be merry for yesterday you were dead. We should be alive, filled with joy. The second one, though, is comparing ourselves. Peter addresses the other kind of running in verse 17, and if I Call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter says, remember that God judges impartially. He doesn't play favorites. He looks at the sin. He calls it what it is and compares his standard is the standard. And if it doesn't measure up to his holiness, then he judges as unrighteous. Or if it measures up to his standard, it's righteous. And so what Peter does here is he says, there is a tendency in order to get rid of our guilt, to not face our guilt, but actually to change the standard by which we measure guilt. And so what we do is we never look at the things we're guilty of, but we actually erect standards of our own that we then judge other people with. See how that works? Because now I don't have to deal with my stuff. I just make a big deal out of this stuff. And it's very easy to feel pious. It's very easy to feel self-righteous. It's very easy to feel better about yourself when you get to play judge and jury. But what Peter's saying is what that will do in your soul is it will make you incredibly self-righteous and down the road bitter because you won't even be able to live up to your own standards. 
And so what Peter says is instead, you have grace. So you do not have to run to creating different standards or erecting standards of your own. You can face the standards of the holy God of the universe. You can face them head on. And those can be the standards by which you measure all of life. And when you realize you need grace to measure up to those standards and you realize that you have grace, what happens is that grace that you have overflows to others who don't measure up to those standards. Peter says, don't numb yourselves, don't compare yourselves. But bring your guilt before the Lord and receive his grace. Stay focused on his grace. But that's easier said than done, right? So lastly, how? How do we take hold of grace? Uh, Peter says, to take hold of grace, you need two disciplines. Back at verse 1. Therefore, preparing. So he's gone through all this, but he set it up with two action steps. He says, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. So that's how you set your hope. That's how you, you get your heart ready to journey through life, navigate through life with your eyes set on the grace of God, living a holy life now. Peter says, you've got to do two things. You've got to prepare your for action and being sober-minded, and these are both participles, right? When it ends with I-N-G, some of you are like, why are we in grammar class right now? Then it ends with I-N-G, right? Those participles mean it's an ongoing action. It's not completed, it's not past tense, it's not a future action. It means it's an action, everyday, ongoing action in your lives if you want to take hold of the grace of God. This is so incredibly important today because it's not natural to take hold of it. It's natural to run. Always preparing for action, reminding ourselves every day of these truths. Peter's saying to think a certain way, to be a certain way. Like there's a holy God of the universe. And yes, you've fallen short of him, but he's given you grace in Jesus Christ because he entered the world and now you can live that holy life. Prepare your mind for that action. But also then, because here's the thing, you could easily reinforce just a sentiment, right? Like prepare your mind for action. Oh, I have grace. Just kind of a feeling, right? Like a nice little cozy sentiment, excusing yourself for your sin. Could go into that. So what's he pair it with? He pairs it with the second thing, always being sober-minded. This is key, Christians. I'm talking to myself here too. We should always be people who are preparing our minds, taking hold of grace and the holiness of God and his standards, but all the while being sober-minded, which means sober-minded of the fact that we have not arrived yet, that we are not fully complete in Christ yet, that there is much more, there's more to go, there's more growth to be had, there's more of Christ to be taken hold of. Sober-minded. Not drunk with our sense of completion. But aware that both we need to take action while aware that we're, we have growth to take hold of. So it, it takes then, if it's ongoing action, it takes ongoing focus. So we have to create habits that are like second nature. Uh, habits of grace, let's call them those. We want to take hold of grace, habits of grace. Actions that elevate both God's holiness and his grace. So you take hold of both. See, here's the thing. I'm talking about spiritual disciplines, right? You guys probably have heard that term. Spiritual disciplines, habits of the Christian life so we can walk with Christ so until it becomes second nature. Because here's the thing. Habits are something that you do until they become second nature to you, right? There are things that all of us do that are just natural. I walk out the door, no life. My wife moves my shoes from the front door. I walk out the door without putting my shoes on. 
because the habit is the shoes are by the front door. And I've embarrassed myself many times walking on the public with just socks on. It happens, right? Because it's a routine. It's a habit. And so we need things in our life that we do so much that they become second nature that we take hold of. And here's the thing. We take hold of both the glory of God and the holiness of God every day. We remind ourselves of who God is. Don't lessen that. Don't lessen the view of who God is that the Bible presents. It will not free you. God isn't in the business of lowering his glory and everything that we're going to take delight in for all of eternity just so that it's the lowest common denominator. No, he says, my glory will be upheld. Joy and peace, amazing glory forever. And I will bring you, by my grace, into that reality. And spiritual disciplines help us every day to take hold of that. Spiritual disciplines are not to make us more precious to God. Spiritual disciplines make God more precious to us. So we go about our day taking hold of who he is. Now in the benediction at the, the end of the service, in other words, I'm going to give share a tool that we've developed that's going to go into kind of like specific spiritual disciplines and how you can use it. I'll come back to that. There's going to be a little bit more practical. For now, here's where I want to end. Uh, start I just want to give you a way to set your mind. Because I know for some of us, you're like, I've got spiritual disciplines in my life, and they're kind of default. What do I do once they become too routine, and they're just habit, and they're heartless? And some of you are going, how do I start this? Where do I go? I, I just keep false starting and not doing it. Here's what I would say. Uh, there, there's a, a kind of a guru uh, on habit making. He's a Christian. His name is James Clear. He wrote uh, Atomic Habits, his bestseller book a couple years ago. And he starts with this. He says, the... I, the the habits that stick are identity-based habits. I love this. And what he says is you need two things. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to think, one, write out, decide. He says this, decide first the kind of person you want to be. So what I would say with this is, who is the kind of person that you sense God is calling you to be? Who is God calling you to be? And write it out. Take time. Who is God? I am a child of God. I will live as a Christian who is fueled by grace. I'll become an encourager of others in their faith. I'll be a person who is, who is a steward of all that God has given me, who I will live graciously towards others. Take time to actually, what is your identity in Christ and who has he called you to be? I am a son or daughter of God. And take time, so I am someone who walks with Christ closely. I'm serious, take time, it sounds so simple. But take time, why do you do these things every day? Or why do you need to do these things every day? It's going to set your heart. The second thing then is prove it to yourself with small wins. I know that sounds kind of businessy. That's his language, so I just put it there. James Clear. But here's what I would, how I would rephrase it is, what are the small? God, we so often will not start with reading our Bible, prayer, whatever it's fasting, stewardship, serving, whatever it might look like, fellowship with others and being community with others. We don't do it oftentimes because we go, well, I failed until this point. Who am I? I'm an imposter to start now. That is letting guilt drive your walk with the Lord. Jesus says, boldly take care of my, or take hold of my grace. Take hold of my grace in bite-sized small ways. If you can't run, then walk. If you can't walk, then crawl. But by all means, keep moving. Take hold of my grace in whatever small ways you can. So it might be literally for the next week, I will every morning get up and my Bible will be laid out and I will read three verses of my Bible. And maybe I will write down one, one sentence of prayer every day. I'll send one text every week that's encouraging. 
whatever it is, I would encourage you. I will share my faith with, I will identify, not even share my faith yet. <laughs> right? I will just identify one person I'm going to share my faith with. God, I'm just going to identify who that is. Start somewhere. Don't let guilt drive your life. Take hold of the grace of God and set habits in your life that point you to God's both his holiness and his grace. In closing, this may be helpful when um because I we need those realities to walk through life. Peter's talking here about the grace that will guide us through until we're home with Christ. One of the things as a pastor, it's a unique kind of perspective that I have is I get to do a lot of weddings. It's wedding season right now. Everyone's getting married right now. It's like every weekend there's like 20 weddings. Uh Anyways, side note. Uh, so it's on my mind. <laughs> PSA, everyone's getting married. Uh, and one of the things that I have noticed over the year, in every culture, the bride is gorgeous. Beautiful, right? And when she comes around the corner, everyone stand, right? I have everyone stand, and then she comes in, and everyone turns, and they look at her. Now, I don't know if you know what happens right after that, because I see it from my perspective up front. I see what happens. Everyone looks at the bride. Oh, there she is, right? And then everyone in the room turns and looks in my direction. Not at me, but at the groom. And they do it real quick and they look back. Some stare and take it in. And why do they do that? They do that because no matter who the bride is, doesn't matter what they may think of the bride or, or all, all the different complexities that come in when the bride's walking down the aisle. Instead, what they do, here's the thing, they look at the groom because intuitively they know that he's the one who defines her beauty. Every bride is the most gorgeous woman in the world in that moment. Why? Because she is to her groom. And I've never been to a wedding no matter what people knew about the bride, no one ever yelled, faker, <laughs> boo, right? Imposter, right? Hopefully you've never been the one that does that. <laughs> or else it really hurts the illustration. But I've never heard that. And why is that? Because his gaze defines her. It's the only thing that matters in that moment. You know, right? And he's up there, and even the biggest, burliest, like, seven-foot guy who's like some Russian cosmonaut. I don't know why I said cosmonaut. You know what I mean? Like, big guy, and he's just up there. <laughs> he's, like, holding it back. I always have tissues. I'm like, here you go. <laughs> right? Like, he's just reduced because he's like, I can't believe the grace of, and, and I get this woman. I, this, this is, our life begins here together. And here's the thing. We walk through a life right now where those voices do cry out. They cry out in our own souls. They cry out from all around us. They cry. And here's the thing. As you're walking through life, Jesus, what Peter is saying here is keep your eyes on the gaze of the groom. Keep your eyes on his grace. Keep your eyes on his love. Keep his, your eyes on his joy. And every day, take time to prepare your mind for action, to take steps down that aisle. Every day, stay sober-minded that yes, I have not arrived to the altar yet. But what Peter says is do not run when you hear those voices. Don't run back down the aisle. 
Don't just sit and debate with those around you and just get in the, no bride pulls off, you know, the clip-ons and it starts throwing down with somebody, right? Why? Because she knows she's the bride. Keep your eyes on Jesus, Peter says. Keep your eyes on his grace. He will bring you home. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, that we can take hold of grace. Lord, I know from my life, I'm sure for everyone in here, Lord, there are things that right now the accuser is bringing to our mind saying, how dare you take a hold of grace? Yeah, but what about this? And right now, Lord, Romans 8, there is neither height nor depth nor breadth that can remove us from the grace of Jesus Christ because your cross goes deeper than any sin and its polluting power does. And so, Lord, help us not to take cheap grace, just to have a sentimental grace, but, Lord, to see how glorious you are, to see how holy you are. And, Lord, in the face of where we are not holy, Lord, that we would take hold of your holy son, we would cling to him by grace, and I don't know how we may say, Jesus, would you bring us through to the other side? Would you just bring us through to tomorrow? And as we do so and we hold on to your grace, would we learn to walk, to put our feet down firmly in you and live a life not our own, but a life that is yours? May we be found that by some miracle of your grace, we would become holy as you are holy. We'd hold on to that until the day, Jesus, and as 1 John 3, 2 says, when we see you, we'll be like, we'll be like you. We'll become as you are. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.